Hello, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And welcome to episode 35, Logan the Orator. It's been a bit, Caleb, but we're following up. The French and Indian War has just ended, and Pontiac and Gaiasuta's War has petered out in 1763. Last time we kind of talked how the Paxton boys killed 20 innocent Conestoga Iroquois Indians in Pennsylvania. The government apologizes profusely to the Six Nations, but nobody's ever brought to justice, and none of the local colonists are willing to testify as to who committed the murders. And on top of this, in 1763, jolly old Mad King George has upset all the colonists by proclaiming all lands past the Appalachians as off-limits. You know, we kind of always give uh, the British and the the English royalty especially kind of blame for basically every problem that's ever happened in early America. But it's pretty refreshing to see that he was actually doing his best to stop some of these scandals that were going on as far as stealing land from natives. And uh, it kind of adds truth to some of the argument on uh, the grievances that they really had at the time. Yeah, this kind of just throws another log on the fire, which makes American colonists upset at the king, thinking that he's intruding in our freedom because we can't settle these lands, including a lot of these people are veterans of the French and Indian War, and beforehand, the colonial governments promised them land for service. So now the king's telling them they can't have it, and on top of this, taxation and other intolerable acts are going to be coming out of Britain, and so this kind of pushes these frontier colonists towards the independence movement that we're going to see coming down the road pretty soon. And it wasn't just like the average soldier that would be walking in the militia or in the regular forces, but these officers that fought in the French and Indian War are basically guaranteed plus 100 times whatever land the privates were. So you have all of these people that were officers in the French and Indian War, and now they're going back home, and they're getting very prominent positions in the local governments, in Virginia, in the Carolinas, in New York. So you not only have the population that is looking to expand and take these land, but you now have all the elected officials who are really looking after this to make themselves profitable. And then you have another segment of the population, the poor settlers, mainly the Scots, Irish, and other low-born immigrants that have come in here that are just looking for freedom and opportunity to the West where they can get out of these crowded little scumbag towns and push out and be their own king. So this is just making an awful, awful mess. So a few years later, in November of 1768, William Johnson, if you remember, we've been talking about this guy forever, he's the superintendent of all Native American affairs. And he hosts a treaty conference at Fort Stanwix. Now, Andrew, I got to stop you right there because uh, I came across a specific order from King George telling William Johnson to not engage in any more treaties without uh, basically the nobility and everybody looking over it first. And William Johnson dutifully ignores this recommendation. So this is a big conference. If you remember, Fort Stanwix is in modern-day Rome, New York, very close by from where Fort Bull used to be, if you remember our episodes from the French and Indian War. And this is a very strategic place because it's right on what's called the Oneida Carry. And in one direction, we've mentioned it time and again, you can go east down the Mohawk River to get to the Hudson, or you can go west down Wood Creek to connect to the system of rivers and lakes to get to Lake Ontario. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Fort Bull the fort that was like completely filled with gunpowder and the French were able to come in and take it over without a shot, basically? 
Uh, more or less, yes. Now, this conference has the who's who of everybody. We've got leaders and governors from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, New York, and even Reverend Eliezer Wheelock. Now, we haven't mentioned him before, but he was a huge advocate for Native American education and rights. If you are a fan of Last of the Mohicans, which we covered recently, in the fictional account, Nathaniel, who's mentioned as the, the hero in the thing, says that he was educated by Ebenezer Wheelock. So there's your connection. So they're all there, as well as 3,000 indigenous people from the Six Nations, including a guy named Logan, who we're going to talk about a bit more in a little while. Yeah, and Andrew, they agreed in this treaty to cede all the land south uh, running from Fort Stanwyck down to the Delaware River and then west to the Allegheny River. There was only one problem, though, and I think we come across this a lot, and that's these eastern Native Americans are making these treaties agreeing to cede this land, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people that actually live in these lands are ceding it. We're going to find again that there are all these different Native Americans living in Ohio and in Tennessee. In fact, Andrew, there were dozens of different nations living in here, and they knew nothing about this treaty. And all of a sudden, they're going to be told once again that they got to get up and move further west. What's really interesting about this treaty is that they sell all this land for over 10,000 pounds. This, Caleb, is the largest payment from a European power to a native nation ever up till that point. But that doesn't mean it was a good deal. If you recall, uh, Reverend Wheelock vastly opposed this sale. He opposed any sale of any more Indian lands in New York State because this line runs down Fort Stanwix, but this is the Six Nations giving up some territory, mainly in the Oneida and Mohawk area. And so Wheelock says, no, this is a bad deal. People shouldn't be giving up their homeland. You guys are taking advantage of these people because they're downtrodden right now. The problem with selling land, too, is you can only sell it once. So for many years, people thought that the Six Nations really got the shaft. And that still most likely is the case with this treaty deal. But they did get a lot out of it. So let's stack it up. So for $2 million in modern trade goods, they give up Kentucky, Western Pennsylvania, and Southern Ohio, which, again, seems like a horrible deal, which it is. However, some people now think that the Confederacy knew exactly what they were doing. You see, after the Seven Years' War, Caleb, the Confederacy is in a very weak position. They've sided with the winning side, and they've avoided total destruction of their towns. But these battles have cost hundreds of men's lives, and smallpox and other illnesses are continuing to kill hundreds of people every year. Don't forget Amherst cut off most of the trade and alliance gift-giving before Pontiac and Gaiasunta's wars, which meant that their economy was in a hugely weakened state as well. But let's look at the positives. So number one, they figure, we don't use this land down south here except for hunting trips, so why don't we get something for it? Also, if you recall, this is pretty close to the East Coast, so a lot of this land has already been overhunted. Uh, so it's not going to be very profitable for the natives as far as fur trapping and things like that. Number two, we get this payment of like $2 million worth of trade goods, and this treaty will give us a huge influx of merchandise to help our communities that really need some new items. Thirdly, you know, this brightens the covenant chain with the British. It gives them what they want. We get to be held in high regards as the native superiors of the Northeast still. And number four, and most importantly, it will deflect the settlers away from us. Yeah, their thinking is if we cede this land down here, 
all of a sudden that land's going to be cheap enough where all of these new settlers are going to flock to that as opposed to pushing themselves without government permission over the Appalachian Mountains and into their other hunting lands. So with Kentucky and Ohio country opened up, all these settlers start pouring in and they're avoiding western New York. When you come to the table in a weakened position, the clan mothers and the Sachem Council may have actually done rather well with the cards that they were holding. Yeah, and like we said, that didn't really help anyone who didn't actually live in the specific five nations. It's going to really affect the Kentucky and the Ohio country. In the Seven Years' War, it was literally started because of the colonial encroachment into native lands. Pontiac and Gaiasuta's War literally started because the colonists were moving in uninvited. And now you're going to keep doing the same thing over and over? Wasn't it uh, Einstein that said that? The definition of insanity is uh, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? That's basically what we're going to run into. These lands were home to the Shawnee and the Western Delaware, who are still technically props to the Six Nations. So they're going to start feeling like the Six Nations are pulling the carpet right out from underneath them for their best interests, and they're the ones that are going to be losing all of their land. Now, in these past two wars, you find out that the Shawnee and many of the Mingo and Delaware have actually sided against the British, but their main goal has probably been in these rebellions to gain independence from the Confederacy. And so the Iroquois League might be thinking to themselves, we still have nominal authority over them, and if they're going to keep rebelling against our longhouse, maybe it would be best if we just sell their lands altogether before they actually do break away. So let's get something for it now. But as Caleb, you pointed out earlier, you can only give away so much land of other people's before you run out of other people's land to give up. Yeah, over the past hundred years, they have been just continually signing treaties and giving away more and more land. But the Six Nations are going to find very shortly that all they have left is their own land. So the Shawnee, when they found out about this, were not happy, right? No. By 1773, we had all kinds of separate groups of surveyors starting to appear in the Virginia frontier, laying out tracks for all these homesteaders that are already on the ground. Government veterans from the French and Indian War start pouring in. And the Shawnee start petitioning the English government to do them justice. They protest. And what do you think William Johnson does about it? Well, he's uh, married to a Mohawk woman, so I'm guessing he's probably going to side with the Mohawk and the Five Nations and do nothing about it. He does nothing about it. We mentioned also that William Johnson did this treaty of Fort Stanwix without the king's permission, and the king specifically said that we're supposed to have this proclamation line and British government needs to oversee all treaty negotiations to make sure that people aren't cut out. Grievances start being sent to the Virginian governor, a guy named John Murray, who had the prestigious title as Lord Dunmore, and they went from his inbox to his trash bin right away. He did not care, and in fact, he was investing in land speculation companies in this country himself. And so it was in his best interests to have colonists start pouring in. And who was it that said, never let a good crisis go to waste, Caleb? Uh, are you talking about Rahm Emanuel? Oh yeah, uh, the former chief of staff of the White House, that's right. Never let a crisis go to waste, and so Lord Dunmore's just waiting for a good crisis to happen where he can intervene and properly seize these lands. Let's talk about our main character, Andrew, James Logan, also known as Tata Jute. He was born sometime around 1725, and let's just start right off the bat and say that there's a lot of uh, argument over who this guy really was, what his name really was, what his heritage really was. 
So Andrew and I are going to do the best we can to kind of give you what we think seems legit, but just be aware that we might be a little off on uh, some of his heritage and things like that. We're pretty sure he was born in Shemokin, Pennsylvania, and his mother was a Cayuga Indian. His father was a man named Chief Shaquillame, and he was a very famous Oneida diplomat. Now, we have some records that say that he may have actually been a white chief that had been adopted into the Oneida, but we have conflicting reports. Some say that he was actually half, some say he wasn't uh, white at all. But he was a very good friend of the secretary of Pennsylvania Colony, James Logan. So we kind of see that uh, this may be where our James Logan, the orator, got his name from his father's friend. And he was a big guy too, Caleb. Yeah, he was over six feet tall. Several inches over six feet. Logan moved to the Ohio Valley just after the French and Indian War. And some people refer to him as Chief Logan, but he was never actually a chief. He was more just renowned among the Indian nations because of his friendship with white settlers and white traders. And so he kind of got his influence just because he was a very personal guy and he basically could befriend everybody and communicate well with everyone. A man named Judge William Brown once wrote, quote, This was Logan, the best specimen of humanity I ever met with, either white or red. So at this time, that's really saying, you know, if you have a judge in the town saying that this is one of the best people I've ever met. This guy is really the salt of the earth. That's a pretty good compliment. Logan had a sister named Kune, and she actually married a white settler friend of Logan, and his name was John Gibson. Yeah, Gibson was an interesting man, so I just wanted to mention him real quick. He was born in May 1740 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and his father ran a trading post and did business among the Conestoga Indians. So this is probably where John Gibson picked up a lot of the local languages. And in 1758, at just age 17, he was a soldier in the colonial militia in the French and Indian War. He was on the Forbes expedition. That's the final expedition that George Washington went on to finally get a hold of Fort Duquesne. But while he's staying at Fort Pitt, he gets captured by the Delaware Lenape people. And during Pontiac's Rebellion, he's sentenced to be burned at the stake. And his life is saved by an old native woman who adopted him to replace a son that had been killed in the war. This seemed like an appropriate adoption since uh, Delaware is an Algonquin nation. And since he spoke also Iroquois languages, it kind of made him look attractive as an adoptee. He could be a really good go-between knowing all these languages. And so it's, they spared his life. After the war, he was freed and continued on as a trader. In his life, he's going to do about 4 million other things of note, including eventually being the governor of Indiana Territory. So anyway, yes, he married Logan's sister, so he's his brother-in-law. And together they had a young daughter named Diana. And everything seemed to be going along just swell for this booming multicultural family. This is kind of one of the more heartbreaking stories, I think, Andrew, because... We see that he had family. We see that he was well-respected amongst the community, and people wrote great things about him, and he wasn't exempt from the slaughter or the hardship. And it seems kind of unfair. We're going to try to explain what happened, and we're going to oversimplify it and leave out some details, but I think you guys will get the gist of it. In 1773, groups of settlers, as we mentioned, are encroaching on Shawnee and Delaware and Mingo lands. And one guy is a man named Captain Michael Creasip. He's looking to lead people into the Kentucky Territory that has just been sold about five or six years ago at the Treaty of Fort Stanwix. 
and rumors begin to spread about settlers getting killed for, you know, settling where they shouldn't be. But mainly these were just rumors. There was no proof of any large-scale native attacks on people. While at Fort Pitt, Cresip calls a council, and on April 26th, the assembly declares war against the Indians. You know, all the Indians, why not? Because, you know, they're a monolithic group, and they all, obviously, are doing this. So, after spotting some Indian canoes on the river the next day, some settlers chase them downriver to Pipe Creek. And there, the settlers engage them in a battle, with a few casualties on each side. Expecting a retaliation, the settlers break camp and move down to join up with Cresip's men to his headquarters at Redstone Fort. And while they're there, members of this group attack and kill another small group of natives in a raid. One of the men there, Andrew, his name was Ebenezer Zane, wrote, quote, On our arrival at the Wheeling, there were two Indians with some traders near and above the Wheeling. A proposition was made by the then Captain Michael Cresip to waylay and kill the Indians upon the river. This measure I opposed with much violence, alleging that killing those Indians might involve the country in a war. But the opposite party prevailed, and I proceeded up the Ohio with Captain Cresip in their head. In a short time, the party returned, and also the traders in a canoe, but there were no Indians in the company. And I inquired what had become of the Indians, and I was informed by the traders and Cresip's party that they had fallen overboard. I examined the canoes and saw much fresh blood and some bullet holes in the canoe. This had fully convinced me that the party had killed the two Indians and thrown them into the river. So this is what's going on in the area. This is just north of where we're going to go with this story. So a bit further south, there's a guy named Joshua Baker, and he lived at the mouth of Yellow Creek and operated a sort of inn-tavern kind of thing. Stereotypical place where you sell grog to whites and Indians. As the violence is picking up, many of the inhabitants of the area have already evacuated due to the warning being sent out to look for marauding Indians. Uh, Baker was just preparing to leave when some random Native woman told him that there were Indians preparing to murder him and his family. So Baker sent somebody out to run and go get help. And the man that came was a guy named Daniel Greathouse. And he brings a posse of 21 men to come to his aid. They start lodging on April 30th in the back of his room in his tavern. And while all of this is going on, Logan, our hero of the story, is away on a hunting trip. Isn't this always happen in a movie? Like the hero is out doing something that he should be doing. Meanwhile, bad things are happening back at home. His extended family are on their way to a Shawnee village to do some trading. And they're totally oblivious to the situation that's going on. They're, they're traders. They're moving down to the next town to try and sell some stuff. So they just so happen to be passing by on that night, April 30th. And where do they stop? Right at Joshua Baker's trading post. And that's in modern-day Hancock County in West Virginia. Present in this group are Logan's wife, Milana Alavata. Also there was his brother, Taylani. He went by the name John Petty. Also, Logan's nephew, Molna, and his sister, Kune, who was known as Ann Gibson. Remember, she's married to John Gibson, Logan's good friend, and Kune's young daughter, Diana. And I'd also like to point out, Caleb, that Kune is visibly pregnant at the time. So in this group of traders that just so happen to be passing by is basically his entire living extended family. Yep. Everyone that's important to him in his life at this point 
is here in this group. So when they come up to the place, Great House's group of men invite Logan's brother and his family into their camp with a promise of some free booze. Well, who doesn't like some, some free drinks on the house? And they offer to play some kind of sports games with them. Oh, well, that, that sounds like a rather jolly evening. So when they came in and sat down and felt comfortable, that's when Great House's men sprung the trap. Killing them dead would have been bad enough, Caleb, but what do they do to them, which is which is even worse. I don't even want to talk about it, honestly. Well, I'll, I, I've got to mention it, so I'll mention it. So after killing, many of the bodies were mutilated. In one account, although it's not confirmed or proven, Kune, while she was still alive, had her abdomen ripped open, and they pulled the baby out and scalped it in front of her. Only Kune and John Gibson's two-year-old daughter, Diana was spared. They looked at her and saw that she was mixed and she had a white father, so maybe it would be best not to kill her. So they left the tavern and took her, and then they saw two canoes coming downstream. They were native men who had heard the shooting, and, well, as good neighbors, they check out to see what's going on, and then they get fired upon. Great House's men fire and kill most of the occupants in one of the canoe, and the others turn back, and then it's said that Great House went over, scalped them, and dangled their scalps from his belt. All in all, approximately a dozen Mingo are murdered in the cabin and on the river. Meanwhile, Logan is out hunting and word gets back to him. And I can't even imagine how he feels. Uh, we have it written down in our notes that he was besides himself. I think we can all use our imaginations and we may dare to put ourselves in his shoe for about a second before putting that out of our head. In his depression and anger, Logan got it in his head that this was Captain Crecep that killed his family. And it's understandable why he thought that, because Crecep was going around and these other massacres that we talked about before, Crecep was involved. However, it's true, Crecep was not involved in killing Logan's family. But we actually have a copy of a letter that Logan penned to Captain Crecep, and it, it says, quote, what did you kill my people on Yellow Creek for? The white people killed my kin at Conestoga. Remember the Paxton boys? A great while ago? And I thought nothing of that. But you killed my kin again on Yellow Creek? And you took my cousin prisoner? Then I thought, I must kill too. And I've been three times to war since. But the Indians are not angry. Only myself. You just pissed off the wrong guy. Before this, Logan is known internationally as a man of peace, as a wonderful good guy who treats everybody fairly, and you just, you idiots, you just killed his entire family. What is wrong with you? It's only a paragraph long, but there's a lot to dissect from this. I think it's very interesting that right away, he is going to say that this isn't the Indians, this isn't the Indians that are going to go and take revenge, it's just me. Because I think that he is so used to everybody lumping everybody in the same category. And he's basically saying, I'm going to take revenge. But FYI, it's not all of these Indians that are taking revenge. This is just me. And I deserve it. When people hear what's happened to Logan, settlers realize, oh no, this means war. If we have made this guy mad, there is no doubt that war is coming. So they start mobilizing the frontier. People start fleeing, going into blockhouses, trying to get back to Fort Pitt. Some are even traveling all the way across the Allegheny Mountains. And their fear is well-founded because 
you know, Logan says he's just going to do it himself, but people start on both sides start to flock around Logan's cause to air their own grievances, especially the Shawnee and the Delaware. So such leaders such as Cornstalk and White Eyes and Gaiasuta initially come in and say, let's try and find a peaceful solution. But Logan kind of convinces them otherwise. He's, they say, yep, Logan's justified. He should have the opportunity for revenge. Soon Logan's going from village to village, giving huge, dignified, oratory speeches, and he's gaining followers for his war party. Well, it doesn't say this, but I'm almost positive that when he was told, let's let's uh, let justice be done and let's, let's let the legal system handle it, I'm sure that they pointed out what happened with the Paxton boys murdering the people a few years before, and they said nothing's going to be done unless we do it ourselves. So soon, Logan and his small parties of Shawnee and Mingo begin striking frontier settlements, and it's said that Logan himself, by the time this event is over, will have killed 30 settlers all by himself. That's not including the bands of people he's going with. Now, who was the guy that we said was waiting for an opportunity to uh, use to seize the Ohio country, Caleb? Well, that would be the royal governor Dunmore. And so when he starts hearing what's happened at Yellow Creek and other points on the Ohio, he says, all right, boys, let's get the militia together. I'm looking for some volunteers to get rid of these savage Indians. And uh, he raises more than a few militia. He actually gets over a thousand men, and they planned a two-prong Virginia invasion of the Ohio Valley. Yeah, one person's forces are going to make their way down the Kanawha River, and then another person named Matthew Arbuckle is going to try and link up with Lord Dunmore, who is marching west from Fort Pitt. Oh, by the way, Lord Dunmore, just to tell you what kind of guy he is, he's renamed Fort Pitt, uh, Fort Dunmore. The name doesn't stick. Cornstalk, the Shawnee leader, as we mentioned before, he tried to get Logan to sit down to the peace table, but he realizes that now his country's being invaded, he's got to do something. Cornstalk moves to intercept Lewis's army, hoping to prevent the Virginia forces from linking up. It's kind of unknown how big an army Cornstalk's forces were, but people think that they were probably outnumbered at least two to one, maybe only three to five hundred warriors. And even and we're not going to talk about him in the future, but he's a very famous Shawnee leader. Blue Jacket took part in this battle. As they get ready to uh, set up for the battle, Cornstalk grabs the high ground along a bluff. And as the battle begins, it lasts for hours. Normally, these are quick skirmishes that are over with, and whoever gets the, the first push, the other side will retreat. But this was just two sides digging in, and the battle started becoming hand-to-hand combat, and Cornstalk is running up and down the battle lines, yelling his men, Be strong! Be strong! Finally, the Shawnee get outflanked. Cornstalk's forced to retreat, and at nightfall, they have to quietly sneak back across the Ohio River. The Virginians have held the ground, and I guess they've considered to have won. Uh, what are the casualties on this, Caleb? Like a lot of these battles, it's really hard to get an idea how many were killed because you have some killed right away, and then you have wounded that die later. So we don't have very good numbers, but we, we can basically give you an idea that there was between 75 and 100 killed on the Virginian side with 150 wounded. Which is still a pretty significant part of a thousand-man force. Sure, that could be, you know, between wounded and killed, that's a quarter of the army. So this wasn't a rout by any means. But it gets even harder to keep track of the Shawnee losses. And this could not be determined because a lot of them that were wounded, they all helped carry them away back home. They weren't going to leave anybody behind. 
And the next morning when Colonel Christian, he had arrived shortly after the battle, marched with his men over the battlefield, he only found 21 dead braves in the open. Twelve more were discovered covered in bushes and old logs and things like that. But amongst the ones that they found dead was a man named Puckskinwa. And you guys may never hear that name again in your whole life, but his son is someone of note. He had a son named Tecumseh. And yes, we will talk about him in about 40 years. So this battle is known as the Battle of Point Pleasant. It forces Cornstalk to make peace. He realizes that there's nothing they can do. The settlers are going to pour into these lands, and we should probably get the best terms of deal that we can right now. So the Shawnees sit down, and this is called the Treaty of Camp Charlotte. And they're told to bring back all their white captives and stop attacking the barges of immigrants traveling down the Ohio River. They finally hammer out the deal in October of 1774, and they also agree to cease hunting anywhere south of the Ohio. The Mingo at first refused to accept terms, but then the British just send in a guy named Major Crawford to attack a village near present-day Steubenville, Ohio, and they destroy their entire village, and then the Mingos agree to the terms. But there's one man who's not coming to this peace conference. That's right, Andrew. The one man is Logan. He gave the excuse for not attending that it would be too emotional for him to attend. So he penned this reply, quote, I appeal to any white man to say if he ever entered Logan's cabin hungry and he gave him not meat, if ever he came cold and naked and he clothed him not, during the course of the last long and bloody war, Logan remained idle and in his cabin, an advocate for peace. Such was my love for the whites that my countrymen pointed as they passed and said, Logan, he's a friend of the white men. I had even thought to have lived with you, but for the injuries of one man, Colonel Cressop. The last spring in cold blood and unprovoked murdered all of the relations of Logan, not sparing even my woman and children. There runs not a drop of my blood in the veins of any living creature. This called on me for revenge, and I have sought it. I have killed many. I have fully glutted my vengeance for my country. I rejoice at the beams of peace, but do not harbor a thought that mine is the joy of fear. Logan never felt fear. He will not turn on his heel to save his life. Who is there to mourn for Logan? Not one. Wow, Caleb. Yeah, you can, just reading it now, you can really feel what he was saying when he penned it. This little, if you want to call it a poem or snippet or ballad, it touched a lot of people. The thing was published in many local newspapers, and one guy that was severely emotionally affected by it was a guy named Thomas Jefferson. The Thomas Jefferson. The Thomas Jefferson. He helped preserve it by putting it in the writings, and he put a little commentary on it, and he wrote this. It was so admired that it flew through all the public papers of the continent 
and through the magazines and the other periodical publications of Great Britain. And those who were boys at the day will now attest that the speech of Logan used to be given to them as a school exercise for repetition. In other words, people started to see the, the oratory in there, and it was a great mental exercise. We don't do it in school anymore, but it was often that people would remember speeches to understand what good oratory was. It's kind of a lost art these days. Now, on top of Jefferson uh, just admiring Logan and what he went through, in later years, Jefferson actually put up a monument for Logan with this poem on it. I think it was at the place where he composed the, the poem too, right, Caleb? Right. And, the, uh, near the battle site. A tree was planted, a great elm tree, and the tree actually lived for hundreds of years. It actually didn't die until the 1960s, so... Uh, We'll probably post a link on our Facebook page so you can see it, but just type in Logan's tree and you'll just see this monstrous 400-year-old tree and uh, you can see the monument next to it that uh, Jefferson petitioned to have built. So let's kind of recap what happens to all these people. We'd mentioned that even Logan at this point thinks that it's Cresip who's done the deed and he puts it in the letter. Jefferson at first thinks that it's Cresip as well, but... A few years later, Jefferson actually exonerates Cresip because he finds out that it was actually Greathouse that did the deed. And Jefferson apologizes for publishing it wrongly, but Jefferson points out that they both killed Indians regardless. The men are not brought to justice per se by man, but I would say that they're brought to justice by God. Because the following year in 1775 in Virginia, Great House dies of measles. The guy is only 23 years old. It's hard to think of just a 23-year-old being the leader that does this horrible deed. And then the same year, Cresip dies as well. Logan lives, and that's kind of what's sad, because he carries on till about 1780, and due to the things he saw and did in life, he just never recovers. He becomes a raging alcoholic. It's hard for him to deal with anybody, whether uh, white or native, and it's said that he was murdered by his nephew during a, one of his intoxication episodes because of a dispute. So it's, it's not a happy ending. I wish we could give you guys something more positive. I don't think you'll ever hear this story told anywhere else, though. No. And it, it really is a, it's a great piece of American history, as sad as it is. And it's a great piece of Iroquois history. Yep. So... With that, Caleb, this is our last episode before we start our series on the American Revolution and how the Six Nations influence and participate in that. And there's going to be a lot of other stuff we bet you guys have never known about American history and just how influential the Iroquois were at helping Washington and not helping Washington. So this new series that we'll be starting, Caleb, will probably be just like our French and Indian War series, seven or eight episodes. And next week we'll be talking about the setup, probably 1775, to see where the Americans are at, where the British are at, and where the Six Nations are at on the eve of the revolution. That sounds like fun. I'm really looking forward to it. When Andrew and I first started this podcast, this was one of the things that we pictured talking about. So here we are a year and a half into it, and we're going to finally get to talk about uh, the things that we envisioned talking about years ago. We'd invite anybody that hasn't already found us on Facebook to give us a like there. I think you'll find that liking us on Facebook has some huge benefits if you enjoy the show because 
We post a lot of links, uh, sketches, pictures, maps, and things like that. And it's hard to just understand what's going on from listening. But if you go on our Facebook, uh, every time we post an episode, we post uh, kind of some other goodies that will help narrate the, the story a little better. And I also post on Twitter, so you can find us on Twitter with the handle at Iroquois History. Also, our website, feel free to go to that. We got all our episodes, and we also have a timeline on there, which might be very helpful for you because it kind of gets confusing from where we've started to where we've gotten. Also, you can message us on the Facebook site. We got a lot of messages over the last few weeks. We had all sorts of different people, people that had just found us, we had Native American people that wrote us and said how much they enjoyed the show. We had people over in England, people in Australia. It really is quite amazing, and we try to respond to every single one of you folks. Also, the most important thing, Caleb, did you know that our sister finally listened to our show like a couple weeks ago? Which sister? Dace. Oh, really? Yeah, she said that she was redoing the wallpaper and thing. She said, I finally listened, and then I listened to every single one of your episodes, and now I want more. <laughs> I was uh, gone for two weeks, and I actually had somebody come up to me. Uh, I didn't really know them other than a casual acquaintance, and they told me that they've been listening to all the episodes, and they wanted my opinion on some things coming up. So it, it's really cool to, to see that people are enjoying the show. So the reason I mentioned Dace is because she said, now I've got to leave a iTunes review so I can become a member of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, and I said, you better. So remember, if you guys have iTunes, leave us a five-star positive review, and we will add you on our website to our pseudo-clan. We may settle for four stars, but that's the cutoff. Anyway, we will see you all at the American Revolution. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye, everybody. We'll see you soon. <laughs>